Good, I have a ticket for the maker fair. Okay, great. Would you consider yourself to be a maker? Of course. Oh, yeah. How I would watch it. So do you consider yourself to be a maker? Yeah. Did you build this? Yes. That do you like great. making things? This is DIYBio.fm, a new podcast exploring the state of the DIY bio movement. To start out the podcast, we've been taking a high-level look at the world of DIY bio. Last episode, we tackled the what and the who, and this week, we're jumping into the how and the why. Today, we're starting with something of a little field trip. We're going to the fair. This isn't just any fair. This is the Seattle Mini Maker Fair. Billed as the greatest show and tell on earth, maker fairs like this one take place every year, all over the world. They're filled with people who like to make things, people who like DIY art, people who 3D print their own axolotl aquarium filters, create coding apps for kids, or even pay homage in metal and plastic to sci-fi giants like Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, this is K9 from Doctor Who. It's a uh, working replica. Insufficient data to formulate a reply. Because kids like animal noises. He also speaks other animal. The Maker Fair is the perfect place for us to start our investigation into how the DIY bio movement got started. As we alluded to in our last episode, there has been a thriving maker culture for decades, with the computer hacker age of the 1970s being especially notable. And this is the backdrop of the start of the DIY bio revolution. At the time, it was a nation of makers and a world of unrelenting scientific advances. New tools were coming available, allowing people to tinker with computers and mechanics at home, create startups, make new products. The maker movement of the 1970s was booming in technology and computer wares. So why didn't we see a DIY bio movement in the 1970s? Uh, so do you know the protocol? Not off the top of your head. That's Zach Muller one of the producers of this podcast. And that other voice you hear, that's me. No, it's uh, not too squish bad. up the strawberries, pour yes. in the buffer. The lysis buffer. Yeah, it's just detergent, right? Detergent and alcohol, right? No, it's detergent, detergent. salts, and meat tenderizer. Oh, you got the meat tenderizer? Yeah. And that third voice you hear, that's Jeremy Hecht, the other producer in the DIYBio.fm triad. One strawberry. Let's squish it. So next up, we're going to take the extraction buffer and pour it into the bag. So you put the, the extraction buffer in there? Yeah. Zach is trying out a DIY bio protocol that's at the very basic level, something we can do with just what we have at home, something we could have done in the 1970s. He's extracting strawberry DNA. Okay, then you filter it into the cup. Where's the funnel? We're going to mash it down through. Oops, sorry. 
Oh, don't let it spill in. That's probably plenty. Okay, so now you pour in five mils of isopropyl alcohol. Let it sit for a little bit, I guess. And... Oh, yeah, 30 seconds. Okay, so what's the reason that we're doing this? Why are we taking this poor strawberry and crushing it and mashing it to extract its DNA? Well, it's a good analogy for why the DIY bio movement didn't jump off in the 1970s. We had the biology, just like we have the strawberry, and we could get the DNA, which coincidentally looks a lot like snot. But once we deconstruct the bigger hole down to the pieces, well, we really didn't have the tools to do anything with it, just like we're left here holding this snot-looking DNA on a wooden dowel rod. We have, what, maybe 250 microliters of gelatinous DNA just floating in here. Okay, so now what do we do with it? I don't know. It's just DNA in a tube. Think of it like this. Prior to the 1970s, with big, bulky computers and electronics, it was pretty easy to take things apart and look at the pieces, kind of like taking a piece of biology, say a strawberry, and reducing it down to DNA. So this is where the idea of technology jumpstarting a DIY movement comes in. Right now, we're sitting in this room with gloopy DNA in our hands. We have the unit parts of the whole. It'd be like sitting in a garage in the 1970s with some circuits, but with no tools that could let the average person turn those circuits into a computer. Without things like microprocessors, makers couldn't easily access the internal pieces of the computer. Things weren't intuitive. You had to wade your way through the machine from top down with limited infrastructure for taking components and turning them into something new. In order to turn this into something worthwhile, in order to take the pieces and really make something new out of it, we need a way to understand how they work, and we need a framework for putting them together, a framework for changing the pieces to get the circuits to what we want. In the 1970s, this was more or less the state of molecular biology, let alone of DIY bio. We had a limited understanding of how the things worked, let alone how to take things apart and put them back together in a novel way. It was like having the strawberry DNA in our hands, but not knowing what to do next. So without this infrastructure for creating, DIY bio was a trickle. Genes were inaccessible, working with DNA was, frankly, a pain in the ass. What could be done in a week today, sequencing a gene construction, characterizing a protein, this would be the entire subject of PhDs in the 1970s. DIY bio was confined to the macro, something very different than what we know today. Jump ahead to 1982. The San Francisco-based startup Genentech was about to revolutionize the world of biotechnology and ring in the beginning of a molecular biology gold rush. It all starts with a little molecule that's found in every human body, insulin. Insulin, as you may know, is used by the human body to regulate sugar levels in the bloodstream. When sugar is high, insulin is produced to promote the absorption of glucose into the body and to keep the body from making more glucose when insulin is high. Without it, the body can't regulate the amount of sugar in the bloodstream, leading to potentially catastrophic effects. If someone has trouble producing insulin in their bodies, as is the case with type 1 diabetics, artificial insulin can be dosed into their bloodstream to prevent high blood sugar. But to do so, the artificial insulin must first be made, which is where Genentech comes in. 
The founders of Genentech were a ragtag bunch of expert molecular biologists. The first player is Stanley Cohen. Cohen is known for his work in discovering the function of restriction enzymes, little proteins that cut DNA at specific sequences. Along with Cohen was Herbert Boyer, who, with Cohen and another scientist, Paul Berg, discovered how to coax bacteria to produce proteins from different organisms. The odd man out was Robert Swanson, a successful venture capitalist. Before 1982, insulin had been commercially produced by several pharmaceutical companies, namely Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which back then was just Nordisk. These companies used pigs and cows for in vivo production. But in 1955, Friedrich Sanger, inventor of Sanger sequencing, laid out all the A's, T's, G's, and C's of the gene coding for the insulin protein. So with this sequence, Cohn's knowledge of restriction enzymes and Boyer's ability to make bacteria produce foreign proteins, the team at Genentech was able to cut the sequence for human insulin right into E. coli and produce the molecule en masse. This technique was sold to Eli Lilly and company, and the product was sold under the name Humulin. Humulin has the title of being the first genetically recombinant product ever approved by the FDA, starting an era of genetic engineering in biotech. But Humulin and the advances in genetic engineering it represented were just the beginning of the wave of techniques and tools in molecular biology that led us to where we are today in DIY bio. Hot on the heels of the debut of humulin came even more revolutionary processes like the polymerase chain reaction, which was invented in 1983 and quickly became the workhorse of molecular biology for its ability to amplify genetic sequences with high fidelity. These advances gave the world of molecular biology some optimism. In 1988, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article on the emergence of DIY bio and biohackers. Details are slim, it's mostly a speculative article, but the author cites rising interests in genetic engineering, animal breeding, and homebrewing as evidence of a growing movement. A genetic engineer is even quoted in the article predicting kids at a 4-H fair showing off their genetically modified sheep in the year 2000. But mostly, this article, and the few others published around the same era, focus on one thing, the frightened public. There's no doubt that public opinion has clouded the field of DIY bio since its beginning. The fear of kids in their parents' basements making a superbug might be the first image of a DIY biologist that comes to mind. Maybe even the phrase biohacker contributes to the feeling of uneasiness lots of people associate with genetic engineering. But fortunately, one group is out to change these feelings, while also building the science brick by brick, or more accurately, biobrick by Biobrick. So what is this iGEM thing you guys keep talking about? started out as a competition for undergraduates. And what it does is it asks these students to develop a novel genetic machine. And so what they're doing is they're engineering gene constructs and characterizing them and making small machines. For example, like something, a bacterium that senses heavy metals and then glows when it hits a certain concentration. So they're in like infecting, um, they're adding in these genes into these bacteria, making these machines. And then the main takeaway is that now you have this gene is characterized. You put it on a website, uh, and that's called a biobrick. Why? Uh, I don't know if you want to expand on that. I'll, I'll I mean, that's cool and all, but uh, why do we need biobricks? Why should I care? Yeah. 
Biobricks allow us to abstract away from the low level of seeing what individual sequences do and kind of being able to look at the functional aspects of a, a set of genes. So Biobricks, can they, can, be a comp- can they be a compilation of multiple genes or do they have to be just one? They can. They can be an entire construct. So okay. for example, um, this gene that then adds in this next gene like interferes with this gene or that gene yeah so effectively biobricks can be any number of layers of abstraction above just one individual gene and that helps with being able to simply it's the same reason that programmers use different functions to modularize their code and so one of the biggest things is that you're always supposed to use the standard format if you're synthesizing genes so that you have the same primers at the beginning Um, as the standard format and at the end as the standard format. So then it's literally just like, well, not literally, but it's figuratively just like this drag and drop gene because now we have uh, the same um, like pieces that it can hook into. So it's just basically developing this library of interchangeable parts for genetic engineering. There's two aspects to every iGEM project that is done. The first is the scientific project. Um, which is like the organism you create and how you characterize it and everything. And the second is what's called human practices. And so that the human practices, I think, is a really important part of iGEM. And it's basically um, trying to expand exposure of synthetic biology to people beyond just the people that are participating in the competition. And so it's it's people will do projects that are getting out into the community and talking to people about synthetic biology and genetic engineering and expanding their project um, beyond just their, the people that are actually working on it so that there's this broader growth of synthetic biology and at least a broader understanding of it to the, the community. Okay, so let's take a quick step back to define a term that we used. iGEM espouses development of a field of biology known as synthetic biology. Synthetic biology, kind of like the term DIY bio, hasn't always had a crystal clear definition. But at its heart, synthetic biology, or SYNBIO for short, is the combination of biology and engineering, approaching molecular biology and DNA as tools to create biological machines. It's a bit of genetic engineering, a bit of microbiology, a dash of process controls and dynamics, a little evolution. In a sense, it's taking biology and making it work for us, building biological systems for our own use as a tool, for art, for education, or just for curiosity. And this is exactly the goal of iGEM, and it also happens to be the goal of DIY Bio. iGEM encapsulates the feelings of a bigger movement to standardize biology and make it more accessible, a movement that is really fueling the surge in DIY Bio today. The standardized interchangeable parts philosophy of iGEM and the BioBrick can connect to things like online kits for translation of genes into E. coli, or community lab projects like Real Vegan Cheese at BioCurious. So while iGEM might not necessarily be part of the DIY bio movement, it certainly overlaps with it. 